Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical and joyful. Today's show is mental and spiritual, a conversation about a whole lot of things that are mental or spiritual or both, and how Catholics can approach this area of mental health and our spiritual life, where they cross over, how they interact, and whether they have anything to do with each other at all. I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by Renee Kohler Ryan, my co host and professor in philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. Hello, Hello Renee. Peter. And by Ryan Galliott, our resident geek and co host today. Hello, Peter. And I forgot to say he's an artist, which yes. of course is more important <laughs> than resident geek. Um, although we might argue about that with Star Wars coming out soon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Before we get started, just a reminder that if you like the show, you should write us a review on iTunes. Thank you very much for all of those who've rated us on iTunes, but please write us a review. The more reviews we get, the more people come to know us, uh, and the more likely we are to be higher on the list of suggested shows for those people out there. Let's spread the word. Remember that this is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast, and we think that's a great idea to get behind. Let's get into today's topic, mental and spiritual. Um, I want to say before the outset, uh, we were just saying before we came on air, a little bit nervous about this topic, precisely because of the delicate nature of it. We, what we don't want to do in this uh, discussion is seem like um, we're downplaying or, mm. or, you know, putting anyone's suffering or struggle uh, down. So um, if any part of the topics in this podcast get to you or are upsetting or you think we've misrepresented you, do please give us feedback. Um, perhaps better to send it to us at info at thiscatholiclife.com.au. Um, our aim is to listen to you, but this one in particular is important to hear. But before you do that, make sure that you uh, have the appropriate help from a, a mental health provider or your support persons. So let's get into it. We've just talked about it being quite a sensitive topic. One of the things that's quite disturbing about mental health is how much more, um, well, how much less mental health, I guess, we've seen around the place, the deterioration of mental health. So this stats and observations about the Australian mental health scene, we were just hearing um, from our producer as we came in that he, he had heard that it was a 1,500%, so that's 1,500% increase in calls to mental health lines, especially people uh, who were dealing with workplace mental health issues. I'm aware that there's been around the same, slightly higher, about 1,800% increase in helplines for mothers So mm. uh, in the last couple of years. Yeah. So what we're talking about is young mothers who are at home with babies and really feeling like they're out of their depths. Yeah. A and we're seeing, to be honest, I'd have to say that we're seeing, uh, Renee and I in the, in the university, we're seeing a lot uh, greater percentage of students who are struggling with mental health yeah. issues coming up. And, and students we would normally have not guessed to be in that sort of range of dangers. Yeah. Um, what I always find surprising is that it's often the people who one really wouldn't pick from the outside yeah. who then present with these issues. I find it really startling when I find, uh, mm. particularly when a young person comes into my office and says, I'm dealing with this and this and this. And mm. I think, you're so cheerful in class. <laughs> you know, you're always... You're always there when someone is asking you for help and yeah. all of this kind of thing. And and I just wonder if it's an increasing pressure to mm. have to perform in certain ways that that people aren't aren't able to be vulnerable somehow. I'm not sure. I'm possibly this is something we'll get into a little bit later. Yeah. But it, I always find it really striking that it's um it's often really unexpected when I come across. Yeah. It's almost this. a chicken and egg argument though, isn't it? Because often the most sensitive people are the ones that feel it the most. And they're often the ones very 
intuitive to other people's sufferings and they'll be open to that. And sometimes they're even the funniest people in the room. Like they'll be the funniest and most amusing and the clown. And yet when you get them down to the depths of of their own struggles, they're quite, it's quite dark. That's right. Whereas uh, the people who seem to flatline in class and you would have picked as perhaps being depressed are just, I don't (laughs) care. (laughs) Or maybe they just haven't touched the the depths of their own emotional struggle. Who knows? Um, So are we just becoming more aware of this kind of struggle or is there actually an underlying uh, like a problem. A couple of theories come up. One is that we're struggling a lot more because of the state of the world. Have we? Has it become a darker place or are we just more aware of it? Um, some people have suggested that social media has contributed mm. to this sort of thing mm. uh, in the sense that we're constantly being bombarded by angry clickbait and debates against each other and shutdowns and that sort of yeah. thing. I have a friend who's a counsellor and I said to her, she's a high school counsellor, and I asked her two things. One, is there a rise in, you know, how many students you're seeing? And she said, absolutely. And I said, "And is there any cause? And she just held up her phone. Really? And she said, this is the cause. If we could, if we could somehow protect these young people from what they're doing to each other on phones mm. and from their constant distractedness on phones, then we would already have a big solution to the problem. They just don't know how to deal with this kind of, it's like this weapon sitting mm. in their hands. And and what you're referring to there, is that the attack on each other? Yes, attack on each other, but also, and I didn't have a chance to go into it with her further, but there's an increasing focus on the self right, and the image narcissism. of the self. It's And it is mm. narcissism. Um, mm. and but it's fear when it's narcissism, isn't it? Like, yeah. I'm not good enough. I yeah, need that's to look right. better, that kind of thing. That's right. So yeah. I was going to go there because the image thing on the iPhone, when people are presenting themselves on Pictogram and um, is that the right Instagram, sorry, Instagram. Picture. <laughs> oh, there's another one that's terrible though. What is it? Uh, were you putting up pictures of everyone else's perfect houses and perfect craft stuff and oh. what's it called? Pinterest? Pinterest. There yes, you go. That's yes. I have a friend who said I'm getting off of Pinterest because it's just depressing yeah. me because uh, everyone's telling me that this is what my house should look like. I'm sorry, it's never going to. <laughs> everyone's telling me I should be do the, doing these amazing craft projects. Forget it. And no, I'm not cooking three course amazing gourmet meals for my family every night. So Mm. it's over. Goodbye, Pinterest. (laughs) So (laughs) Pinterest, Instagram, um, Snapchat is one that the kids get right into apparently. Um, Slightly more dangerous, I think, for the young people because there's a temptation to think that it's transient and then they can get away with certain behaviour on there and not get caught. And there's um, some normal Facebook stuff. And a lot of the presentation of it is to present oneself in a certain way, to to sort of have a public image. It's almost like we're we're our own agents. That's right. Trying to sell ourselves as a Hollywood sort of product. I had a friend of mine, actually, I have an Instagram account to show my artwork. And uh, a friend of mine decided to help me out one day. And she uh, went through the account and you can archive pictures so that no one else can see them. And she cleared out quite a lot of my photos into the archive saying, this is it. It looks clearer now that you're an artist, that this is the image that you want to project, that you're the, you know, you're the struggling Catholic artist. (laughs) And and that that really struck me because a lot of the photos that were hidden were the ones with me and friends and right. And and it's so easy then to, to compare yourself that, sorry, that I should say that, Open the window to me to, to seeing how how much uh, I compare myself to the image of others, right? Um, the image that they portray themselves as wow. on on social media, and uh, I didn't feel as bad about my life then. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think I I do agree that there is that element with it. People mm. project the image of a life um, online, yeah, 
And there's that element. I think it comes with that competitiveness that we, we have in society. Yeah. I mean, I'm no expert, but I think that was one thing that, that got me when I was a student. Yeah. I just never felt good enough compared to what I see. Right. Um, it's yeah. a really lousy way to communicate, I have to say. Every time I send an email, if there's like, I, I have to stop myself and go, wait, did, are they going to read this in the tone that I wrote it? Yeah. Um, because almost always there's a potential for miscommunication. So whenever oh, I'm- you just s- use an LOL. Oh, okay. no. <laughs> no, actually, that's a funny story. I have a, I have a, a, a friend who, um, a good friend, I have to say, who honestly and earnestly thought LOL meant lots of love. Yes. <laughs> Someone, another friend of mine fell into that. As and they well. would, you know, sending notes about so-and-so's died and we're going to their funeral, LOL sort of thing. And you go- um, right. <laughs> Somebody needs to tell them. It was, it was a genuine mistake, but it's just, I mean, it's so easy to miscommunicate even when you write in, in, you know, cause as Renee will testify, when you, when you're quite busy, you're sending off emails quite rapidly and there'll be one line and suddenly, you know, someone else reads it and they're in a, a bad mood and they go, Oh, why are they being so offensive? Yeah. Emails are bad enough, let alone when you're doing a Facebook comment. And especially when young people in particular place so much value on how many people like or dislike or comment or whatever it is. And if they get a, like a slightly snippy comment, someone else might be trying to be funny but it comes across as hurtful and they, mm. they get really down. Yeah. Um, we've, yeah, it's an interesting one. I'm probably going to be, get myself in a little bit of controversy here, but we've actually not given our kids access, to, unrestricted access to social media until they're uh, 17. They do get access, but we have a public space where all of us can be on the internet at various stages, but they don't get private access. Now that's been a major fight in our house because so, yeah. everyone else has got it. Everyone else has got a phone. Like kids as you know, eight and 10 year olds are walking around with iPhones and oh, you're such a draconian, what is it? Um, middle ages. There's nothing wrong with the middle ages. Don't let anyone tell you. <laughs> well, apart from the plagues and you know, <laughs> all the other. Yeah. And we things. don't have anything going on right now. That's really, really bad. Do we? No. Oh, there have been some improvements for at least some. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm with Augustine on this. Yeah. Every age is as bad as every other age. I have to say that whenever I feel like, you know, I'm really depressed because this, this, how could it get much worse in the church? All you have to do is go back and read the, the context, the historical context of Augustine's writings because yeah. you think, I wish I was back with Augustine, Jerome. They really had their crap together back then. He'd tell you you were crazy. Yeah. Well, there was literally vandals coming through to sack Rome and, you know, like, yeah, well, right. we're not quite that bad yet. Um, not, not quite, but well, it um, depends if you listen to McIntyre, the barbarians <laughs> are already here. They're not at the gate anymore. Yes. They're here. Well, I mean, this is the thing. I think there is something about us being aware of world news, which does make us depressed. I mean, if we constantly, I actually improved my mental health now. So this is probably time for disclosure. I have my own struggles with mental health and I can, because I've been trained to do it because I was a counsellor at one stage, I can fairly accurately measure where I'm at in terms of my mental health. So I actually notice distinct improvements when I don't read news for a week. Mm. So if I don't read news for a week, there's a marked improvement in my mental health. Mm. Just absolutely nothing else changes that improves health. And to be honest, I don't miss a lot Mm. because a lot of news is clickbaiting. And, you know, yes, it is important, for instance, what's happening with Brexit, but it's unlikely to involve me in any meaningful way, like in terms of decision making. Like I don't have decisions to make that will be involved in, in, you know, what Donald Trump's doing or Brexit or anything. I don't need to know that on a week to week basis Mm -hmm. or a day to day basis. And really getting to know things that I can't do anything about 
involves me emotionally with concern or anger or whatever it is, but I then don't have enough mental reserve, sorry, emotional reserves to deal with the guy I meet on the street who needs a hand, you know, mm. the, the ordinary mm. people who actually I should come across. The other factor, though, I'd like to throw at you guys is um, this thing that comes up a lot uh, in school situations is resilience that we used to, if you like, build resilience as kids. And there's lots of old people who go, oh, back in my day, you know, we had to, you know, what a, what's that old Monty Python skit? Lick road clean with tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Get up at you know, three o'clock in the morning, half an hour before we went to bed. The whole idea of everything being harder in the old days. I, I don't know if it was harder in that sense, but when you were constantly teased and belittled in your own family, like I grew up with siblings, you just got so used to it that when other people teased you, it, did, it didn't affect you as badly. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm noticing that my kids aren't as affected by teasing as other kids are mm. because they get it constantly at home. Now, it's not nasty at home. It's all done in good, good sort of natured. But they can take it when someone else dishes it out because they just don't. <laughs> you think that's bad? You should see what I deal with at home kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, hey, what do you think of that? Oh, I, was, um, I was teased a, a lot. In high school, primary school, I didn't have many friends at all. Right. So that was a nasty kind of and teasing. It was, it was a nasty kind of teasing. And as it's interesting, this movement now to remove bullying. I think bullying should be gone as well. Yeah. But at the same time, I think something's missing when we forget that we should also raise our children in a way that uh, allows them to the strength or at least the capacity mm. to be able to deal with bullying themselves, to, to know how to... To change that, I mean, all the bullying that I encountered, as, as you were saying before, all the bullying I encountered in high school is nowhere near as bad as the, the way that I feel after, you know, certain comments on social media right. or on Facebook. Mm. Um, th those things can get to you because they it's almost like an attack on your whole lifestyle or, yep. or who you think you are. Yeah, and is it does it pe depend who it's coming from? Because it used to be in school when the bullies teased me, that's what bullies do. Yeah, and it made yeah. me feel awful until I got myself out of the range of the bully, and then I didn't feel awful anymore because mm. they were just idiots. Well, the thing is, at least the bully knew who I was. <laughs> you know, it was personal. Yeah, yeah, it was it was personal, he, and he did it, it to my nasty, face. But he invested in it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right. and that's it. Because at least then, I mean, I know now. I went to my. Oh, I'm going on to my uh, two decade. Uh, two decades out of high school now, but I remember going to my 10-year reunion with high school students. I almost mm. didn't go, but um, I did go, and I'm glad for it because it was almost, it was a very healing kind of situation in the, in the, in the way that um, all the people that had teased me and I felt bullied by, it was all water under the bridge. Right. In fact, it was more like, a, you know, brothers right. meeting each other again for the first time in 10 years. Wow. Um, and there was so much closure mm. in just being able to come back after 10 years, after having lived more of life and realizing, hey, that jibe wasn't so bad at all. Right. It was, you know. Or at least they didn't mean it that way. Yeah, their, they didn't. And, and, you know, you realize how little some of those things as teenagers right. are that seem so big at the time. Right. Um, so I think a lot of it is, is that, I guess, that scope of understanding of how big your world is. Yeah. I, I'm a... I'm not a perfect, um, I'm not the perfect person to talk to about this. I think I agree with Kelvin and Hobbes, the comic, when um, any, I think anybody who looks with nostalgia back on their school days is either deluded or they were one of the bullies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, my experience of high school and primary school was just constant bullying. 
Mm. Uh, now that doesn't mean I think it's a good thing and think I think it was horrible. Yeah. And I think we should train people to stand up for those people who are being yeah. bullied. And I tra- taught my children to stand up against bullies, which ended up with them being the target of bullying almost constantly in school because as soon as you stand up, you make yourself a target. Yeah. Um, but I've never been intimidated by bullies. And I think I was one of the shortest ch- children in the school because I was only five foot till I was 17 and shot up another foot in my year 12. <laughs> so mm. I was the constant target because I was the smallest guy in the class. But I never, ever shut up. And I know you find that very hard to believe, but, <laughs> <laughs> but the purpose of the bully was to intimidate. And if I, if I refused to be intimidated, they, you know, killing wasn't an option in high school, though it got reasonably close sometimes. Um, I'm not joking about that. One of my classmates was stabbed. But the, um, the whole experience of it was that if you refused to be intimidated, they, they simply, in the end, they just gave up because it mm. wasn't mm. worth picking on this little kid who just kept at them. Mm. Um, I think there's a difference between teasing and, and bullying. Okay. So what you were talking about with what happens in the family, true, a kind of true. gentle teasing. And I actually wonder if that's quite important. I know that I tease my friends as mm. well, friends and family. And often it's a way of kind of pointing something out gently that they might not <laughs> see otherwise. So it's kind of like a counter to narcissism yep. in some ways. If one can take on a tease and think, oh, now that's... Why is why is that person saying that? Actually, that's probably something that I should be thinking out a bit about a bit more, or be a little bit more mm. aware of. And so. it's also important to learn to laugh at yourself. Yeah, that's right. Because right. if you can laugh at the little quirks that you have, or even even things that are slightly annoying about yourself, mm-hmm. you learn to take them with about the appropriate amount of seriousness. Yeah. Which is that all right? I'm, okay, I'm yeah. a bit of a nong in that area, or I'm a bit annoying in that area. And my kids constantly badger me about my pedantic response to grammar, like my daughter. And I were learning French together at one stage. In fact, a couple of us were learning French now. And she'll consistently say, Cest moi. (laughs) (laughs) Who's on the dishes? Cest moi. (laughs) (laughs) And she has the most beautiful imitation of a French accent when she tries. But she knows it grates on me. I I can't let it pass. Even though I know she's baiting me, I just go, C'est moi. Come on. (laughs) It's It's not that hard to do. And she, because she knows it's my trigger point, she'll press it yeah. Yeah. every time and they'll all giggle and look at me and, and it's teasing. That's actually not to try and put me down. That's not a an oppression thing. It's yeah. not mm-hmm. intended to be nasty to someone. It's deliberately poking at something which is, you know, amusing and that I should be able to laugh to myself in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so perhaps, what do you think about the theory then that um, this sort of, resilience which is built up by friends being able to gently tease us is a bit a little bit lacking these days is that a so the part of the theory is that there's a lot less siblings in people's homes in general and so if you're growing up in a one or two child family you're less likely to have that kind of yeah, resilience built up that could be part of it i think that is probably only part of it though okay um yeah, I, I do think that the social media, we just haven't learned how to do that well. Right. Maybe there is no good way of doing it well, but people become more. Uh, so the idea that people are more and more connected, I think, is actually untrue. Right. I think they're more yeah. and more disconnected because they're fooling themselves into thinking that they're more connected. Because yeah. um, they're investing their social efforts into that area yeah. rather than, yeah. And one, one student a number of years ago now who presented to me with severe mental health issues. I remember being struck, and and it was only when that happened, the presentation of the issues um, in this really overt way happened, that I remembered 
a conversation that had struck me a couple of weeks before where someone in a group of students just said in passing, oh yeah, I went through my friend, my, my Facebook friends list and I realized that I had two accounts. So I deleted one and immediately the response was, oh, so that's why I'm missing one friend in my, <laughs> in my Facebook <laughs> friends. So she was like counting oh, wow. every day. And if someone wasn't her friend anymore, this was a huge issue. Wow. And so just kind of ballooning almost out of control. Wow. Um, hundreds of friends on Facebook. <laughs> 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 there are friends and there are friends. Yeah, but yes. Possibly our problem is that we don't know what good friendship is yeah. anymore. It's all, like we used to ha- talk about best friends in school. I mean, I never really got to that level, but you know, you'd have people who were like the, in your closest and usually it's only a few people that you can invest that much time and space, mm-hmm. you know, with and um and then maybe a few more outside of that. And I think we can really only meaningfully interact with at most a couple of hundred people in a in, in a regular basis. Mm. And that's not really at a deep friendship level, you know, mm. maybe a dozen at most. But there, there's a we have to ask the question about uh where where the Catholic thing comes in here. Like um I would be very careful about this because there's some people who try to spiritualize mental health yeah. and there are some people who try to remove the spiritual element of mental health mm. from the whole question. So some people yeah. like to treat it purely as a medical category and say, just get a professional involved, get your faith completely out of it, just about the mechanics and mm. the biology mm. and the neuro- neurology, if you like, of it. And on the other hand, other people are saying, oh, you're those quacks, those people, they're always, anti- you know, the atheists, they're always mm. bad for you. It, it's what you really need is to pray more. Mm. And yeah. Well, I'm going to come right out and say, I don't, I think that's a very profoundly dangerous way mm. of going about things. Um, it's very clear from what we've observed in medicine that these things are real mm. and Quite possibly, the stigma of mental health is what's stopping a lot of people actually getting help. Yeah. So when I was growing up, there was a, a mental hospital in town called Hobson's Park, and if someone was a hobo, they were mocked and derided. And there was the, um, if you know, if you said something a bit crazy, you were on the Hobson's bus or something. You know, it was mm. a kind of a, a way of putting someone down. But uh, even these days, people are a little bit worried to mention that they've got a, a struggle. Yeah. It shouldn't be because, you know, there's so many people who are struggling. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's a form of dualism, in fact. So people think that the the only – so dualism is where you say there are two aspects to being human and, and one for one part of that, one, one of those two, is more important than the others. Right. So often I find in Catholic circles there's this emphasis on the spiritual as though – the mental, the physical, the everything else isn't that important. So if you just focus on the spiritual, pray more, Mm. everything will be okay. But actually what we're dealing with as humans is this very complex integrated whole or should be integrated whole. And the more one emphasizes one aspect without all of the others, the more distorted everything becomes. So you see this sort of really forceful, well, if I just pray more, if I fast more, if I, if I do this more, then, um, then everything will be okay. But that means ignoring other things that really need to be addressed at the same time. I think, I think as well, it's, it's interesting because I mean, I'm, a lot of that stuff that we actually do see or express or see others express are the symptoms of, you know, a low mental health, you know, poor mental health. So um, what, what symptoms are you talking about? You know, like, you know, the, the being sad or the things that we see. Okay. Yep. But those are just the symptoms. I mean, trying to, you know, telling someone to pray more and, and do all <laughs> those things, while that might address what we think 
is the actual problem. It doesn't look at the person um, mm. as a whole and yeah. the things that drive them. I mean, I, uh, I'm very much work oriented when it comes to, uh, especially when it comes to other people. Um, I like, I guess, my hobby, <laughs> and and my my adult life has been spent in in being with other people, right? And and uh, sharing with them their lives and and stuff like that. And a lot of the, my a lot of those people um, have gone through some negative times, and they're always surprised to find out that I've always struggled with anxiety, right? And a couple of times when I've struggled with depression, right? And um, I think it's that whole image again. And do they usually say, oh, I didn't think that because you're always so positive. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, I've never tried to hide when I go through those periods. Right. Um, I've been struggling with it since I was in high school because of the teasing. And so unless you do the whole Shakespearean thing and go, woe is me, <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. not really That's depressed. That's not Shakespeare either. <laughs> <laughs> you, Shakespeare in Middle Ages, we've got to talk. Oh, dear. <laughs> that was almost biblical, wasn't it? <laughs> that I leave up to you. <laughs> but, I mean, if, if I may, I, I think one of the things that that need to be addressed as well is, is this whole, uh, you, you brought up res- resilience before, but in mm. high school, I remember, I think it was year eight or nine, they brought in this whole curriculum where they did away with the concept of coming first, second or third ah. and sort of participation awards. Kids All right. Yeah. And I remember- Everyone's a, a winner. Yeah, but it was the times when I failed and as bad as I felt when I failed, it drove me to want to do better. Yeah, yeah my, my year 10 or was it year 11 English teacher actually- gave us all a fail for our first assignment in English in that year. And we were horrified, all of us. He said, how can we all fail? And we came in unified thinking, you can't fail us all, that's unjust. And he sat us down and said, do you think I owe you marks? Mm. If you want to pass, you need to go Um, out there, grab the marks by the jugular, slap them on the page, and dare me to fail you. And we all sat back with horror. And then we realized, hey, this is something we have to fight for. And we all improved by at least a grade in that year in English. Now, I I had been told the year before by my English teacher, I was going to fail and drop out and be nothing. Mm. Now, that was part of my determination. But this guy actually gave me the motivation. And we went out hunting for the mark, literally. And Mm. it became the way in which I, uh, that's why I'm here now, really. But the... It was the challenge that did it for me. Yeah, yeah. And you notice that I've noticed that with some young students when they come in, I look at them and go, "You're brighter than this. What yeah. What are you doing handing me this rubbish?" Yeah. Except that we have to be very careful yeah. <laughs> saying yeah, things, things like that. But when people are challenged gently, mm. then they usually respond. Yeah. But the whole, when my kids get trophies for participation, you know, those trophies go in a big box yeah. out the back, <laughs> whereas the medal they got for being best and fairest is always, you know, pride of place. Actually, I'm not sure if I told you this before, Renee, but um. I nearly failed intro to philosophy at Notre Dame. <laughs> that first, that first introductory philosophy subject. Philosophy is hard. Yeah, and yeah. it wasn't. It wasn't until I nearly failed and I realized the way I thought was problematic, and I had yeah. to analyze how I thought. Yeah, philosophy. I ended up majoring in philosophy. Yeah, because I I enjoyed it after that. You mm. know, yeah. I, I surpassed that that fear of failure and that that. You know that laziness, I guess, yeah. and I, I really strove to do better. End yeah. up enjoying the subject so much. Now, some some of it could be, and this is another criticism I've heard from other people, is that people haven't really suffered. Like, there's some people who have really suffered, and you can see it in their situation, their family life, their, their, their like if there's a broken family or there's hurt or there's some kind of suffering in their early life, they'll they will suffer genuine. Like sometimes it's post traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Sometimes I'm not sure what the word for it is, but there's a new kind of 
thing I heard of recently where it's not post-traumatic stress disorder if the the cause of your trauma is ongoing. It's still, it's still yeah. trauma. Yeah. Um, uh, some of the students are suffering this, and to be honest, um, uh, that's you know part of adult life as well. Mm. There's an ongoing struggle. Uh, and because we have a, a special needs child, we're dealing with lots and lots of special needs families, and mm. often the special needs of the child and the you know the the change in the hopes and dreams of the parents has, is an ongoing trauma which which affects them in that way one of the other factors is is a lack of control over the situation especially if you're looking at social media we're often looking at disastrous situations we have zero control of but coming back to the mum's situation Renee you could probably talk on this a bit more uh, when a mum's suddenly she's completely competent professionally or in her own field and suddenly she's faced with a baby which has no manual and, <laughs> and life has totally changed and completely reliant on or, or subservient to the needs of the child, suddenly there's just no control. Yeah, that's right. I think that that is a huge thing. I remember that becoming a mother, um, that they're all, all of a sudden not only had I just gone through nine months of having everything completely changed <laughs> physiologically and was exhausted and labor was difficult. Well, labors are always difficult, mm-hmm. but mine was especially difficult. Um, and then I had this little baby who needed me 24 seven and that was a huge transition and it was completely beyond my control. So that was something that, you know, I had to become used to very quickly and I can really understand the pressures that mothers are under um, in many different respects. And I think that this might be part of why we're seeing seeing mothers um, who, are, who are expressing all of this. So there's the lack of control, but there's also the, um, the rising expectations from other mothers. Yeah. I think that um, often sorry. mothers are not very kind to each other. And when you read those those manuals on how to be a good parent and all yeah. this, thing, they're all, all often so unrealistic in yeah. their expectations. Like you must have a perfect disciplined child, but never actually discipline them. Yeah. There's all this kind of wow. expectations, and frankly, every child breaks the mold about you know once a day. Yeah, that's mm. right. And also just the loneliness of mm. it all. So until the child can actually start to hold <laughs> some coherent kinds of conversation. Um, it's pretty darn lonely being at they, home and when, when you're trying to get out of the house. And when I had um, young kids and we were living overseas, I had one friend who was also a mum. We used to meet every day. That that was what kept me going. Right. Um, but I had the radio on all the time at home. I had mm. BBC Radio 4 because I was like, there are intelligent people out there and they are thinking <laughs> about things. And I could listen to stories and, you know, all of this kind of thing. But it kind of broke through the loneliness right. in some way. Um and I think that that's not really accounted for. And then you have the whole problem of, so I'm in a working mom, Catholic working mums group on social media and there was, um, on Facebook, and there was a mother who was saying, it's also really hard, like it's, you can't win. It's really hard as a working mum because anything that happens for mothers is usually during the working day. Yeah. So she had talked with the parish priest about how she was finding it increasingly difficult as a mum to do what she needed to do. And his response was to start a mother's group at nine o'clock in the morning. Mm. So she said, well, that doesn't help. So what are we supposed to do now? Do I start another one? Or, mm. you know, so there's, it, it's really hard for everyone to kind of negotiate the needs of, yeah. of different members of society. Part of, part of it's the breakdown of extended family connections. Uh, yeah. Although oh, a recent, <laughs> they can be mental health yeah, risks. I, as well. I actually recently <laughs> said this at a talk and someone said, excuse me, I've got lots of great family connections. They don't stop showing up. Yeah. The issue is that they don't interact in a helpful and, That's right. and healthy, yeah. healthy way. Yeah. Perhaps, um, 
um, what I was also talking about is that some people haven't actually had a meaningful experience of suffering in the sense that we mean, like they've grown up in a quite a sheltered area and they suddenly get into adult life and some boss is yelling at them and they've never had anyone saying anything bad to them ever mm. and they're freaking out in a disproportionate way. Yeah. In some respects you can understand it because it's how much we've experienced. But I have to remember uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel's comment. He says, the man who has not suffered, what does he know anyway? It's like basically unless you've actually suffered, you really don't know who you are and you don't know, you can't actually empathise with anyone else. A few weeks ago I was travelling to Parramatta. I was waiting at Redfern Station and there was this, uh, these two uh, platform attendees or attendants there and one of them saw this man with a child just cross the line. And so casually because he was in a conversation, he couldn't really just walk over. He said, oh, please step back behind the line. He raised his voice a bit because the man was maybe 20 metres away. Right. The man with the child walked over to the attendant and said, don't you ever yell at me ever again. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this can't handle, this person can't handle that kind of. Yeah. Always having a really bad day. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was an interesting. Child bit, had been yelling at him all day, really you, did not need maybe, someone maybe else yelling at him. But, <laughs> but I think that sort of that um, brought me back to, to a few of my friends have said to me, Nothing really phases me. Right. But then again, I'm not really passionate about anything. Right. And I think a, mm. lot, of my, a lot of my friends that I've met in the, the last few years have actually mentioned that they wish they could be passionate about something the way that so-and-so is. Right. And um, That sounds like a deadening of, of reactions or emotions. Yeah. Like you're dulling your sense sensitivity to things in order to protect yourself. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's just yeah. interesting that... that it seems to be something that's lost. We are supposed to be passionate. Like yeah. if, we, if we see beauty, we're supposed to be moved by it. If we, if we see tragedy, we're supposed to be angry about it. We're supposed to have those reactions. Um, perhaps it's because we've been bombarded by the social media images and the news, the disastrous news that we're in like disaster exhaustion. Mm. Like we just can't muster the, the sensitivity or the, or the empathy to, to deal with ordinary situations. Uh, I've often wondered how people can walk past the homeless people on the street without any feeling completely, uh, what can I do about this? It's so hopeless because I can't change the situation. Yeah. I know whatever I do actually doesn't help the situation. But um, people seem indifferent and perhaps perhaps they've just trained themselves to be indifferent or perhaps they're feeling the same way I am and I'm judging them unnecessarily <laughs> that it's not showing on their faces or, or perhaps we're just so absorbed with the various troubles of our own lives. Mm -hmm. um, coming back to the mental health thing though, I don't think we can dismiss spiritual aids in these things. Focusing on the good, true and beautiful mm -hmm. is a good thing. And um, there's no doubt that if, we're, if we have a particular sin weighing us down, for example, going to confession actually is a mental health lift because if mm -hmm. something's affecting us, it can actually bring us out of that. Um, receiving Christ's own body and blood in the Eucharist has to be a lift. If this is true and it's real, this is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that's yeah. wonderful. Receiving, if, if we're particularly um, dangerously ill, then receiving the, the anointing of the sick is an amazing um, thing. It's often been very emotional when I've seen that done. But... Um, we just shouldn't make it all about spiritual things and mm. pretend it's as, as, you know, oh, you just need to be more prayerful or something like that. It shouldn't be forgotten too that some of the most spiritual people who have ever existed have gone through what is called the yes, dark night of the soul. Yeah. So you've got St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila. I learned recently Edith Stein, so St. Oh, Teresa wow. Benedict of the Cross. All of these, you know, they really went into very, very dark mm. 
periods of their lives where it all they could fall back on was God, mm. but without the emotional kind of um, yeah. benefit, if and I can put it that yeah. way, of connection with God. So feeling his absolute presence and absence at the same time and just feeling absolutely desolate yes. about this. So those who are suffering from this are in very good company, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think company is probably another important factor, being with people. Yeah. I mean, it's Job's comforters often get a bad rap in the Bible, but they did show up and sit in silence with him for seven days. So before we've, until we've done that, we can't really criticize his comforters for the bad things they said. Yeah. Seven days is a long time to sit there. Just listening to people, you might think, oh, it wasn't any help. The fact that you were there listening yeah. actually is a help. Yeah. It's an important thing. Yeah. Uh, I remember remembering back to uh, Sherry Waddell's uh, time with us here in the podcast, um, saying that she was surprised at how many people, even high up Catholics, uh, don't really haven't really understood that this faith is is a relationship. And right. I think that's one of the things. If mm. if we just see it as a A B C D do this. Yep. I mean, I struggled to pray a lot when I was going through those dark times. Right. But I always found so much hope and goodness mm -hmm. in understanding that this was a relationship. Right. Now, it doesn't mean just have faith and everything be okay. Yep. It's more that it was something that helped me get through yep. when I just couldn't find any other way through. Well, it's, in any relationship, if I'm really down or we're struggling with relationships or, you know, my wife and I have the strongest relationship I have in my life is my wife's. Yeah. And yet when we're struggling, we don't, you know, sit down and have a nice little... Mm chat about trivial things uh, and we don't tend to psychologize each other in that sense sometimes it's just sitting together like just being there and actually or listening to sound off about something that's happened in the day and just shut up just listen i used to kneel there in front of the altar and just spout all the stuff i felt i was going through right and just go <laughs> yeah this sucks <laughs> you know and and i found so much good in that i mean but it is a struggle. It's it's something that I had to struggle a lot to bring myself to mass every Sunday. Mm. When in those moments, it was yeah. I felt like how how can I do that when I don't feel it? Yeah, you know, it's. I find that very difficult when you're going to a place where they attempt to present all of the music and and things as if it's happy. Mm. Now. I have no objection to happy songs. There's a place for them in the, in, the, in the church. But when you try and present everything as happy, as everything is great, everything is wonderful, I think Simka Fisher said it on the podcast we had on Sex and Laughter, that it's, it's exhausting to say, God is good all the time mm. you know, and wonderful and I'm so happy. In fact, that's just it's something I can't face if I'm going to go to church and have someone tell me how great I should be feeling about God. Yeah. Actually, about half the Psalms are laments or yeah. whinges or angry fist-waving sort of things and saying, heck, God, what are you doing about this oppressor or this bully or that thing? Mm. Um, my usual go-to place for when I'm feeling down is actually go and read some Psalms because they're really, I mean, whatever I think I'm feeling and how, oh, gee, I probably shouldn't be feeling this as a Christian, you read the Psalms and go, Whoa! This guy's got a problem with. <laughs> he's really got. He's got, probably got more problems than me. Yeah, and I think it's important to. Um, there can be a tendency to say, if you believe in God, then nothing should touch you. Nothing yes. should faze you. If your best friend has just died, or you mm. found out that you're 
a loved one has cancer or you've broke you've broken your leg or a kid is sick or something objectively speaking you have very good reason to be upset about something so yeah, someone who yeah. then comes along and says oh smile you know you're yeah. supposed to be happy because god loves you <laughs> is Someone who should be locked up. <laughs> I think they're the mad ones. <laughs> See, I, I was thinking punch in the face, but that's probably not. I know, I know. I was going that way and then I was like, oh, uh, it's yes, not yeah. so good. Yeah. Yes, anyway. So <laughs> this Catholic life does not endorse these sentiments. <laughs> <laughs> and no one was harmed in the making of this podcast. In general terms, probably what we need to be, uh, I mean, I think trying to sum up what we've talked about here as a as a Catholic community, is more like a family. I mean, that's mm. the way the early church describes itself, as a family of believers, that they're brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, we, we use this kind of language. But actually, being a brother and sister in Christ is not this sort of feel-good, mm. smarmy kind of, oh, brother sort of thing. Sometimes it means a brother or sister can actually tease you um, to the point of distraction as a gentle friendly help in terms of dealing with your faults. Sometimes those brothers and sisters can... can basically be teaching you how to live with people who are difficult and and helping you through. But they're also the ones who should be there even when you're not being sociable, when you're not being helpful. I think there's something to be said about preventative healthcare, as in the sense of why wait until someone falls over and says, I have a health mental health problem. Why don't we just identify the factors which actually seem to prevent these things and actually aim for those things? Community, strong, laughter, um, now we're planning a, an episode on laughter very soon, but laughter as a preventative thing um, is a good thing. Common human contact, physical touch, uh, you know, physical activity, exercise, things like that should be um, something we keep in mind. Just having the solidity of relationship to know that even when you're critical, even when you're saying you know truth that isn't popular, that you do love the person mm. and helping them to understand that this is all out of love and then you want the, the best for them, regardless of what happens, you're there for that person mm. because they are another person, you know, not, not because they are someone, you know, a stepping stone to get what you want or anything yeah. like that. But yeah. that real love, that real uh, Christian love, I would say, yeah. of, of wanting the best for the other. Mm. And that you're in it for the journey. You know, yeah. I'm not here for yeah. this or that. And, yeah, you, know, you might not be fun today, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here for mm. you, not for fun. Mm. Um, and perhaps some of those stories that Renee talked about, maybe it's good that we hear more about St. Teresa of the Cross, yeah. Um, yeah. her story, or, yeah. or um, Edith Stein's one I haven't heard. Now I'm going to go and look that yeah. up. And, um, but uh, the dark night of the soul uh, is a big deal. But um, also not when it's so flowery, I, the really messy stories, the, the mm. things when people have messed up and felt yeah. under pressure. Um, in terms of uh, mental health, probably um, as a church, we could also recognise the triggers. So there are some things in modern society, like the family breakdown situations, especially when there's relationship breakdowns, um, things that people often are assumed will shake off. Like, so I've often dealt with students who ask for an extension because they've had a relationship breakdown, but they're relieved when it's acknowledged as being a factor because almost nobody else is allowing them to, to be, you know, this is not... Oh, get over it. It's 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 yeah. weeks ago or months ago. You've got to get over it. There's there's no acknowledgement of the actual struggle. Mm. Um, so yeah, just acknowledging these things, um, being more upfront about it, especially when someone. And one big one that comes up a lot is when a mother or a, or a couple is trying for children and they lose a baby um, early in the gestation. Almost nobody knows about it often because people don't tell about yeah. the early gestation and they almost or nobody, if they did know about it, would make a big deal of it. Um, yeah. 
but how how do we go through that? And we were, we had some advice from a, a priest uh, that we should name each of the the babies we lost, and we still include those babies in our family litany. Now that might seem a little macabre to some people, and some people have commented that, but I've never felt since we were doing that and actually mourned them in a proper way. Mm. I've never felt that same grief that we were feeling at the time in the same way. That, uh, I don't know if that's that's uh, it might not be useful to everyone, but it's one way in which the acknowledgement helped. Um, I think we, without being professionals in this field, we've more or less touched on what we can in this topic. Mm. It's time for something happy. We'll try with a one-minute wonder, something which has made us wonder at the universe, laugh, or perhaps just think a little harder. Box. Oh, actually, after this episode, just just thinking about the uh, the people in my life, I've really struggled the last year or so, and I've had wonderful friends that have just called up and said, "Hey, look, I'll treat you to lunch," or "Hey, look, why don't we go watch this movie?" "Hey, look, let's do this," and just spending the time, not even necessarily having to talk about things, but just being with me, and so that's really, I guess, led me to to contemplating the love of Christ and the nature of of that, you know, the providing He ha- He does for us. The, the, yeah, so cool. Renee, I've been thinking about water lately because I visited my family who um, are farmers and there's a terrible drought going on and we keep on seeing all of this in the news. Last time we came home, I'm always saying to the kids, turn that tap off. What have you got that tap on for? And they didn't really get it. I think they've finally gotten why their mother is so um, obsessed with not wasting water until they saw the huge and devastating effect that it's happening, um, that it's having. So now they are looking at water differently and it's made me look at water differently as well or even more differently than before. So every time they get some and drink it, they're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. We have water. Oh, I wonder how the farmers are going and kind of thinking about that. But also if there's any water that needs to be poured out, they don't pour it down the sink. They take it outside and they make sure that they water something with it. And so it's just, you <laughs> know, wondering at water, I think, um, is something that Australians could do a little bit more of, especially when we have a lot and we're looking at so many places that are looking at um, severe water restrictions and getting down to having no water at mm. all quite soon. Some some places are already shipping in water. Yeah. Yeah. Sydney is interesting. We have a kind of a wet season, or at least we used to. So the summer, we tended to get more rain in summer yeah. uh, than winter. But it hasn't been consistently that in the last couple of years. No. We, we've had a bit more of a drier summer. Please, God, we keep praying for rain. Um, my one-minute wonder is uh, I was listening to John Anderson's podcast and he was interviewing someone. And it, what struck me about this is that you make assumptions based on some the way someone talks. He was interviewing Baroness Caroline Cox. Now, a more posh idea of a person I could not get. And her accent is the what we would perceive as a classic kind of upper-class English accent. And then when you actually listen to the interview, it's about her work in freeing people from human slavery. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not just, you know, she's not just in an office somewhere in England. Firstly, she says she's the only baroness she knows. She was made into a lord, um, like the House of Lords, through political means, um, didn't want it, but uses it now for this this same cause that she was pushing all along. I think they put her up there to try to get about her politics, I think. <laughs> but she she's talking in this podcast about flying in a light plane into various areas of, you know, deepest Africa under like anti-aircraft fire to land and get certain, you know, women out of slaves, sexual slavery and all this sort of thing. So she's not, (laughs) she's not talking about just pushing pens or, you know, 
clicking like on Facebook. She's mm. out there on like in huge danger pushing these things through under a threat of death or worse. Um, and I, you know, my first impression of her and listening to this thing, oh, should I listen to this podcast? She's one of these baronesses from England. It's such a profoundly um, earthy and beautiful thing to be doing for fellow humankind. I'm, I'm actually kind of trying to find more out about it because she's amazing. Anyway, that was my wonder. If you liked or didn't like anything about this podcast, you can tell us by dropping us a line at info at thiscatholiclife.com.au. You can join our conversation by joining Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, our Discord chat, or you can find the links in the show notes on our website. Be sure to write us a review on iTunes, and that's how we get the word out about what we're doing. Remember, this is a uniquely Australian podcast. We think that's an idea worth getting behind, so tell your friends. Before we go, it's time for shout-outs. Renee. All of the counsellors out there who are doing more work than we would hope that Amen. you would have to do, um, there is an increasing need for the work that you do, and I know that it is not easy. So thank you. Amen. I'd just like to shout out to those friends of mine that have stuck by me through the years. So uh, thank you uh, for being patient. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be mine, actually. People who just text out of the blue, sometimes when they've had a hint that things aren't going well or other times they just haven't heard you for a while mm. and they, they call up and say, haven't heard you for a while, mate, what's up? You know, And they sit down and give you even just a small amount of time. That really makes a difference. It doesn't yeah. seem like the time, and I'm certainly a bit of a... Uh, dull Jimmy when they come to those conversations but it actually really matters so thank you very much that's all for now and thank you for listening to This Catholic Life